I live in a neighborhood that I jokingly call Mayberry. It's incredibly safe for pedestrians. And yet the majority of parents drive their kids to the school because there's no buses because everybody is supposed to walk. And the, the principal prioritized the driving, like the whole focus was how to manage the cars better instead of making it more difficult for the cars and making it easier to to bike and walk. And then folks would say, well, the parents are working. Well, I'm a working single parent and I still manage to, 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 to walk every day. You've tuned in to the Active Towns podcast, conversations about creating a culture of activity in our communities. So wonderful to have you along for the ride. Before we get started, I just wanted to send out a special shout out to our Patreon supporters and donors, because without your contributions, we could not make this content happen. And we're excited to say we brought on another patron on our Patreon page just this past week and raised $300 in donations on our Active Towns Facebook page in the last 36 hours. And if you are in a position to contribute, please click on the links in the show notes or head over to our Facebook page or our website at activetowns.org. Your generosity makes the conversations like this one with Lynn Richards possible. Thank you all so much. Okay, let's get to it. This is John with the Active Towns Initiative, and I am delighted to welcome in a good friend of mine to the Active Towns podcast, Lynn Richards, president and CEO of the Congress for the New Urbanism, also affectionately known as CNU, an organization that is dedicated to helping build places people love. Lynn, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, thanks, John. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's just absolutely thrilling to be here talking to you. Let's start off by really just checking in and get a sense as to what you're seeing in your neighborhood on the ground right now, given the the situation that we're in with the coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it's been really interesting over the last month, a little bit over a month, five weeks now that I've been home, I have seen both in my neighborhood and nationally an acceleration of trends. And so what do I mean by that? I've always been a walker and a biker, as you well know, that's how we first met and became friends. But now everybody's out on their street. I have seen more bikers, more walkers, fewer cars. I feel that the ratio between cars and pedestrians in my neighborhood has entirely flipped. And you're seeing that nationally as well. Denver is closing down streets. You know, city, the headlines every day now are talking about more cities. Austin shutting down streets, making more places for pedestrians. And I don't think that this is going to go away when we come out of this, because nobody really knows when we're going to come out of this. I don't think we're ever going to go back to where we were in January, for example, of this year. I think we'll get back to kind of a new normal. And my deep hope is that the new normal has a lot more physical activity, a lot more walking, a lot more biking, because people have seen, it's like, hey, this is this is great. I love getting around my neighborhood like this. And for those who aren't have who don't have safe places for getting around, I think they'll start demanding, "Hey, I want to I want I want a better place. I want destinations that I can walk and bike to. I want a greater focus on local business and locality and a greater connection to your neighborhood." 
Yeah. And you basically just set up the strategic plan uh, right there. <laughs> and the, the main strategic areas support complete neighborhoods, legalize walkable places and design for a changing climate. Why don't you talk a little bit about that and, and where we go from here? Because I think it's very applicable to what you just said. Yeah. No, th- thanks for that opportunity. So CNU as an organization is now 26 years old, 27 years old, and we've had a number of strategic plans. But this particular strategic plan feels groundbreaking to me, as well as the board of directors. About almost two years ago, we launched an effort called NU Future. What's the future of new urbanism? Every organization goes through this kind of transformation. You have your original goal and you kind of achieve it. And now what's next? So we engaged over a thousand members um, across the country on what was next for new urbanism. And surprisingly, there came a consensus around eight areas. And then we looked at those areas where the organization could play a central role in accelerating and amplifying those issues, you know, versus some of the other issues that were in a new future. So in these particular areas, supporting complete neighborhoods, legalizing walkable places, and designing for a changing climate, we felt that as an organization, we were best positioned to move those conversations significantly forward. And in many ways, they're interconnected. Those three areas, when you're looking at it, are areas where we excel and are areas where we can make a significant difference, both as an organization um, as well as the membership. So when I say we, it's like we are seeing you. They represent the best type of collaboration between the two. And I, I think it's it's an acknowledgement of where we are as a movement and where we are kind of nationally. We talk about supporting complete neighborhoods. It includes absolutely affordable housing, but a complete neighborhood is so much more than that. You have to have you know, diverse and affordable housing for all socioeconomic demographics, but you also need places for people to play as we're finding out now. You need to have places where people can live, work, shop, and play and different choices on how to get around. And so there's a lot that we can do there in terms of retrofitting suburbia, revitalizing urban neighborhoods, developing new suburbs, and that so much of what we do is illegal right? The codes and ordinances that provide the foundation of how our community is built are making what we do illegal. So if folks say, oh, I really want to go and live on a place like Capitol Hill, who can afford it? There's so few places that have this kind of walkable urbanism. The prices are really high. And the reason why there's so few places is that they're so hard to build. They're so hard to build because they're illegal in codes and ordinances. So change the rule book, you're going to change the dynamic and frankly, create a more kind of equitable playing field. And then, you know, as everybody knows, one of the biggest challenges... (laughs) would have said the biggest challenge up until a few weeks ago, a few months ago. But one of the biggest challenges that we're facing in the 21st century is designing for a changing climate. And that means a couple of different things. The first is how can you take a place, what are the strategies and approaches that you can suggest to a place like Miami that will enable residents to stay there longer? Like you're just not going to throw away Miami. At some point, 100 years, 200 years, Miami is going to look a lot like Youngstown. It's going to be a shell of itself. But we don't know when that is, and we want to extend that period of time. And then flipping it around, 
Youngstown and a lot of the Rust Belt cities, Buffalo, et cetera, have an amazing opportunity to really leverage and take advantage of the, of the climate migrants within the U.S. So new urbanist approaches in terms of long-range planning, strategic planning, uh, infrastructure investments, designing is really applicable for working with those cities. So it's two sides of the coin. And again, I feel that we're uniquely positioned. So you take all of that together, the complete neighborhoods, making it legal, and then thinking about the future. And that's really what we are trying to achieve with the strategic plan. You'll notice that I said nothing about any of the strategic areas achieving or having a strategic area being equity and inclusion. And that's because it's the board's hope and my hope that all of this will lead to more equitable and inclusive neighborhoods and communities. That's the ultimate outcome and goal. Or as you started off, you know, building places that people love, all people. We're really excited about it. It took a a tremendous amount of effort But I also feel like unlike other strategic plans, this really felt ground up, you know, because we started with asking the question of the movement, what is next? And then drilling down in what we can do better than the movement or how we can best leverage the activities of the movement. And that's, I've talked to a lot of my colleagues as well as funders, colleagues meaning, you know, other other um, EDs, executive directors or CEOs. And I always say CNU is a unique organization. There's none other like it. Um, the organization does some of the work, but the vast majority of the work is done with members. We have a symbiotic relationship. The organization's goal is to really amplify and promote the work of the members. What can we do that individual members can't do on their own? But we can't do what we do without the work of the members. I have a 3,000 member R&D team, and I feel so strongly that that entire membership has my back and I have their back. And by by really leveraging and accelerating that symbiotic relationship, we're going to achieve the goals of the strategic plan. And it does occur to me that we may have some listeners that are scratching their heads trying to understand the term new urbanism. How would you like to how would you like to uh, define that for folks? Yeah, so the mission of the organization, we we recently rejiggered the mission of our organization, which is to champion walkable urbanism. And I start there, John, because I think it provides a great example of what we are achieving. You know, we're looking for walkable, vibrant places where people have a choice on where and how they want to live, work, shop, play, and get around. So I have a car. I like to drive my car. But I also live about a mile from the metro and about 10 miles from work. So I can bike to the metro and take the metro in. I can take the bus in. I could run in if um, if I were you. But, you know, it's about having a range of choices. And absolutely, on occasion, I drive. So I like to think of us creating neighborhoods where we have the option for transportation fluency, that we're not just reliant on one type of transportation. And so by no means do I think we should all 
live in a small apartment above a metro stop. I firmly believe in providing choices for people. So in the middle aughts, there were about a million homes built. And 95% of those were single family detached homes. Yet when you look at the polling data over the last two decades, it's been pretty consistent that about half the population wants to live in a more urban walkable neighborhood. And that can be at different scales. That can be at one block main street rural area to suburban urban node neighborhood or even a bustling downtown. And about half the population wants to live in a single family detached. Again, no judgment there. So, but if you look at if about 50% want, want this and 50% want the other, and the market is responding with 95% of the product, that's where, we're, that's where we're having real tension. So we try to work and eliminating the barriers to create that walkable urbanism for that 45% that have the demand and the need, but aren't able to achieve it because of the prices are so high. Yeah. I jokingly refer to the new urbanism as a return to the old urbanism, the traditional development pattern of how we used to build cities prior to the automobile being the, the primary mode of mobility that we started to transform our landscape and our built environment. I want to go back a, a little bit and to say the, the other piece, in addition to what you're saying about the old urbanism, if you think about it, more than more than smart growth, more than sustainable urbanism, what new urbanism focuses on is that active public realm, that space between the buildings. So we can have this mix of uses and, and places that people can, different choices on where and how people live, workshop, and play. But when you get into those new urbanist places, it's that active public realm, that space between the buildings that pops. And I feel that that's what distinguishes us from every from everywhere else. And so, yes, it is about the old urbanism, but it's also really looking at the role of design in that active public realm. And that's where kind of the active towns piece comes in. Yeah, definitely. And 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 when I hearken back and look at some of the traditional urbanism, traditional cities and town squares, you 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 put it just right. They they intuitively did such a good job of activating the public realm and the public spaces and and things of that nature. It wasn't just a afterthought that they tried to shoehorn in. It became part of that incremental development that took place within those original cities and town squares and and, and things of that nature. It, whether it was a development that came into fruition two hundred years ago or two thousand years, there was that pattern that took place. So, based on what we just talked about, that brings us back around to project code reform and how do we make things legal? So go ahead and let's talk about that. So I'm particularly proud of the project for code reform. When I came into this position in July of 2014, I had a meeting with the staff and I remember writing on a piece of um, flip chart paper, Project for Code Reform. And uh, everyone asked, what's that? And I was like, this is what I want to do in this position, because there are 42,000 units of local government. And I feel really strongly that to achieve the outcomes that we've been talking about here today, John, we have to meet those local governments where they are. That it's okay to say, all right, well, we can do a form-based code or Euclidean zoning or an overlay, et cetera. 
But I feel really strongly we have to meet people where they are and to help them where they are. And Rick Bernhardt, who used to be the planning director for 20 years of Nashville, said it best. It's like, I came into Nashville and I'm wanting to help transform it. And I just started with one thing. I'm just like, for new development, let's go ahead and throw the parking in the back. Let's just start there. And that's the basis of the project for code reform, which is what is the biggest, littlest thing that we can do? And maybe you only do one thing this year. And maybe next year, it's two things. But the idea behind it is it's it's a step before, say, lean. It's a step before form-based code. You're taking the um, business as usual, and you're making it a little bit better. You, we have a lot of aspirational codes. We have the smart code. We have form-based codes. We have complete code overhauls. And we all know about the tremendous amount of political will it takes. You're from Austin. I don't need to tell you that. And the incredible amount of money it takes. But what we're finding in working in places like Michigan, New Hampshire, Vermont, is that by providing a menu of the biggest littlest thing that a community can do, we're leveling the playing field. So it's no longer a, cha- a, a difference between a wealthy community that can afford to bring in the consultants and a less wealthy community that wants to change their court ordinances. We're providing, again, the biggest, littlest thing. Now, under no circumstances will this guarantee a beautiful place. It, it won't, but it will enable a good place. And so we've worked now in Vermont. We've worked in Michigan, where we've created an urban and Main Street Guide, and we're just finishing up the Suburban Companion document. We worked in Vermont, where we did a document that focuses on affordable housing. And then AARP is working with us to release a national document and we're doing training in both of those places. And this is just a a few years efforts. We're kind of taking our time on this as we develop the methodology and and roll it out. But we're we're really excited about it. You're working at a statewide level and we work collaboratively with partners. So it's one thing, for example, to understand, you know, again, 42,000 units of local government. Think about the huge amount of time it would take to work with all 42,000. But there's 50 states, which which isn't hard at all. And you know intuitively that the coding issues in the state of Michigan are going to be very different than, say, from New Mexico. So that's where we start. We start with working with our state partners, um, working with people who know the different coding issues um, throughout the state. And by that, I mean the municipalities. We bring them in. What works? What doesn't work? Where are the challenges? Where are there barriers in the state enabling legislation within, you know, within the just the state rule of law? And we develop the biggest littlest things that you can do and it's it's really kind of taken off from from Rick Bernhardt's you know that has been the touchstone and in a a few of our initial meetings all the the entire faculty of course are CNU members you know we kept going but Rick said if we do nothing else what's the one thing you could do and so we keep peeling it back and so generally we've compromised on like one or two things Uh, that can be done in, in a number of different a number of different areas such as like parking, use, form, public realm. It's really pretty exciting. And it's fantastic working in this way with, with, uh, with the membership and the faculty. 
Yeah. And just for the listeners where if if we lost you a little bit on that, let's uh, I'll try to clarify just a, a little here. What we mean by legalizing walkability and creating complete neighborhoods and things of that nature, what has happened over time is our, our municipalities, our cities have developed codes, zoning codes for what it's is legal to build and not build. And we won't get into all the intricacies of, of this, but essentially it's saying, let's, let's make it legal once again to be able to build these lovable places, you know, these traditional developments, you know, get back to that urbanism, that original urbanism that we're now calling the new urbanism and make it legal to be able to have mixed use in the same area. And partly because of the impact and the influence of the CNU as an organization, a lot of this is becoming more common. Talk a little bit to that, Lynn. I like to start talking with parking. So in Loudoun County in Northern Virginia, there are eight parking spaces for every car that is registered in the county. So think about that for a minute. You leave your driveway, you have eight different parking spaces. So we are essentially designing our cities and neighborhoods for places to park cars, yet it's people who buy things in the store. It's people who walk on the sidewalk. It's people who inhabit our cities and not cars. So John Anderson, uh, another longtime friend of all, all of ours, and John probably has a podcast with him at some point in time, will often talk about the rules around parking. And if you're trying to do a four square, which is just taking an old house and creating four apartments, it's great incremental development. The parking requirements may require eight parking spaces to accommodate on that plot of land, making it impossible to create that type of housing type. So that is what we're finding in so many of our downtowns and in our transitional neighborhoods, that it's because of parking requirements, you just can't like revitalize a main street because you have to have five parking spaces for each 500 square feet of restaurant or retail. We're over parking. And that creates, you know, a lot of problems, not only for the public realm, for the cost of the development, but also for environmental. You're creating a lot of unnecessary um, impervious surface, which is going to increase stormwater runoff. So I, I, we often start talking about parking. Another one that I like to talk about are the, the impacts of stormwater regulation. Clearly, how stormwater should be managed in a downtown area is very different from how it should be managed in a more rural or um, suburban area. Yet so many of the times the regulations are the same. So if you were going to be doing, and I know this for a fact in Nashville, if you were doing a downtown redevelopment, you would have to manage your stormwater with a pond, a stormwater pond. Now that that that's the rules. That's what we mean about changing the rules, legalizing walkable places, because nobody would want to see a, a pond in the middle of of downtown. That doesn't that doesn't make any sense when we're talking about creating that walkable urbanism. There are a lot of other rules such as setbacks. You know, the farther you the building is from the street, the faster the cars will go. 
All right. Well, that doesn't make it very safe for pedestrians or it's illegal to park on the street. On street parking, parallel parking creates a great buffer for the pedestrians. So everything that I've just mentioned is illegal. And what we're trying to do is to unmantle and actually to take away some of these regulations. Now, Planning becomes really important here because there are going to be some places where you want to really encourage a lot of pedestrian uh, activity, and there are some places where it's a little bit important. And particularly now, as we're transitioning and we're beginning to redevelop our suburbs, for communities to determine where they want to see those you know, vibrant, walkable places and where where it's not ready yet is is an important piece of it. And that's the planning aspect that so many of our members do. Please pardon this very brief intermission in my conversation with Lynn. I just want to interject a couple of quick reminders. I'll insert links in the show notes to the people, programs, and initiatives mentioned in this episode. Also, if you haven't already done so, please subscribe to and rate the Active Towns podcast on the listening platform of your choice. Hey, we're out there on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, just to name a few. And finally, please do share within your network of family, friends, and colleagues as appropriate so we can grow the audience and this important movement to create a culture of activity and promote places that people love. Okay, that's all for this break. Let's get back to my discussion with Lynn Richards. So you mentioned our John Anderson, our, our good friend, and specifically he's involved in, in in a process and in a in a group out there called the Incremental Development Alliance. He also talked a little bit about uh, parking in terms of the ability for an on-street parking uh, spot to to provide some refuge for uh, pedestrians. And we're seeing more and more cities, especially in more dense urban, larger urban settings, uh, and, and some suburban settings as well, of being able to use those parked cars to create protected mobility lanes for cycles and for scooters and for skateboards or whatever mobility device that you might have. And having that parked car serve as a, a barrier, a buffer from the traveling motor vehicle lanes and then still providing you know that realm, that pedestrian realm. Uh, talk a little bit about that connection that uh, the Congress for New Urbanism has with mobility and with transportation. Yeah, that I think has been our, our bread and butter. There is a movement around complete streets and, and a complete street is that street which has, say, a sidewalk, a bike lane, a transit lane, and, and then travel lanes. But what we're finding in those states that have adopted con- complete street policies is that they have often left out the design piece. What do I mean by that? I'm going to answer it by challenging all of your listeners. The next time you're walking on a street and you're enjoying yourself, I want you to step back and check in with yourself and be like, why am I enjoying this? Are cars speeding by really quickly or is it nice and slow? Are there trees? Do I feel safe? Do I feel protected? Right? Just check in with yourself and to try to 
articulate why you feel comfortable and safe in that particular area. And then another time when you're feeling particularly unsafe, when you're walking down a street, articulate why is that? I have, John, of course, I, I travel all the time. I, I've, I've seen, you know, hundreds of different cities and I've seen cities that have implemented a complete streets policy. And as you know, I, I'm a cyclist. I'm pretty fearless. I, I'll bike almost anywhere. And some of these bike lanes, I'm like, you've got to be kidding. There ain't no way God's green earth I would get on that bike lane because it didn't have a design component. So I'm answering your question in a kind of longabout way that new urbanism advocates absolutely for complete streets, but complete and beautiful streets. It goes back to that active public realm. We want to invite people to feel safe and to explore their neighborhoods and their cities in different modes of transportation. Now, absolutely, it's not going to be for everyone, but to make, make it a choice for those who want to do it. I am more than a few decades old. I've been a lifelong cyclist and I started biking to school in fifth grade. I'm not really sure why I started doing that, but it was five miles to to my elementary school and I did it. I've also been hit by a car three different times. And one time landed me in the hospital for a week with every bone on my left side of the body broken. And I can tell you right off that I love biking. It centers me in a way that for a lot of people, it's their yoga practice or whatnot. It's my choice of how I get around. And yet so often our cities aren't designed for that. About 10 years ago, my little commute to the metro got put in a bike lane. And the number of near misses went from probably two dozen a year down to zero just by putting in a bike lane. And I think that that's that's really important as we look at how to increase mobility in all different neighborhoods. It's not always about transit. It's not always about bike lanes. It's about repairing the sidewalks. It's about making sure that the sidewalks are safe, that the bus stops have dignity. You know, a friend of mine likes to talk about pedestrian dignity, and particularly in underserved communities, we need to fix those sidewalks. We need to fix the bus stops. We need to make sure that if you're in a wheelchair, you're not navigating a light pole in the middle of the sidewalk. We're not navigating on a sidewalk that suddenly ends for two blocks. So that's really, I think, a lot of the work that new urbanists have been focusing on is how do we create these complete and beautiful areas in all different kinds of neighborhoods. Yeah. Design matters so much because really our goal is to create an environment that is safe and inviting for all ages and abilities, regardless of their mobility choice. You're absolutely right. We have so many great members of CNU that are doing the hard work out in the cities, uh, helping guide these municipalities to put forth environments that truly are welcoming for everyone. Yeah, and I like to think, you know, we we mentioned CNU members, but there's also our allied organizations that are doing such important work, you know, such as Safe Routes to School. You talk about subtle design differences, and I think schools and how they how they deal with the transportation issues means everything. Are they prioritizing 
biking and walking if you live in that neighborhood. I live in a neighborhood that I jokingly call Mayberry. It's incredibly safe for pedestrians. I got yelled at because I would let my kindergartner just walk three blocks to school by himself. And yet the majority of parents drive their kids to the school because there's no buses because everybody is supposed to walk. And the, the principal prioritized the driving, like the whole focus was how to manage the cars better instead of making it more difficult for the cars and making it easier to to bike and walk. And then folks would say, well, the parents are working. Well, I'm a working single parent and I still manage to, 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 to walk every day. So I, I think that there are there are ways that we can nudge. You know, I, I, I once wrote to the principal and, uh, and said, you know, you started this whole list with driving first, put biking first, like all kids should walk or bike. If you're having problems, let us know. And then, you know, go down it that way. And then if you must drive, do it this way, but you put the driving right at the top of the list. So when you talk about design strategies, John, that nudge you one way or the other, I think it's also about how we communicate and There's not a lot of lemonade to be made out of this pandemic right now, but I do think that some of the lemonade that we're making is how people are reinventing their relationship to the built and natural environment that folks want to get out and neighbors are being, because we can't talk to anybody else. So, um, you know, talking to your neighbors, being outside, really experiencing how your neighborhood works in a very different slow down way, I think is a, a little bit of lemonade that we're making. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but I want to amplify a couple of additional organizations that are out there doing some amazing work and hard work and, and, and helping us all in this process. Uh, certainly those of us who are members of CNU are not alone in doing this. Uh, NACDO, the National Association for City Transportation Officials, is doing amazing work working on some of those guidelines uh, and guides that are uh, helping raise the standards. And so it's it's wonderful to see that starting to happen. You also mentioned AARP, the AARP Livable Communities initiative and effort that's happening there. Is that sort of the interface that we're working with uh, AARP? Is that through the Livable Communities? Yeah, absolutely. And they've been strong supporters of the CNU's work, but they're, but so much of their work overlaps. Gil Penalosa uh, talks about designing a place eight to 80. And I think that that's exactly right. So if you can design and create a place where your eight-year-old and your 80-year-old parent feels comfortable out and about, well, then you know, that that's solid gold. Though AARP is working more just for creating, they call it livable places. We might call it places people love or walkable urbanism, but I think we're all aligned in the goals. They've been huge supporters of tactical urbanism, both Mike Leiden and uh, Build a Better Block and how, what are the short-term inexpensive and cost-effective strategies that can be implemented with a whole community that create a, a more community feel. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us right back around to what you just talked about, which is this uh, interesting situation that we're in, given the pandemic and many cities uh, scrambling to do some rather tactical implementations, responding to the overwhelming need, uh, the overwhelming demand of people wanting to experience their public realm in a different way. Yeah. It's really exciting. And I'm wondering what's going to happen when this is 
all over. Do you, do you take it away? Do, do we give it back to the cars? And what kind of what kind of fights are, are going to go, you know, go on there? I think and my hope is that I, I think some of it will have to be given back. But my hope is, is that city officials will begin to reimagine how their cities can be designed and to give it back back to the people and not just build our places for cars. Because ultimately, we're not trying to move cars from one place to another. We're trying to move the people in the cars. Yeah, exactly. And and I do believe that what we're going to see as as we do transition to whatever this next level will be, I don't think it's just going to be turning on the spigot. I, I think, I mean, so many people have lost their jobs. So many businesses have been profoundly affected by this downturn that it's going to be a creeping up effect. And so I think that there's going to be this gradual increase back to something that we would call normal. And so there's going to be this rather interesting, almost uncomfortable transitionary period where people who are really attached now with being out in their streets. So it's going to be interesting to see how that all transpires. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. The, the other trend that's happening, and again, that, that's, I think we're seeing an acceleration of trends. We absolutely were seeing this hyper-localism um, happening before the pandemic. But I think that that's another trend that is really going to continue. I know in my neighborhood, it, it's, you know, support your local stores. Can you do takeout? Can you do this? And I think we'll see at the end of this that a lot of restaurants didn't survive. So we're going to move into a different type of entertainment area. So how can we reduce costs significantly, reduce our overhead? Um, and in a restaurant area, that's taking the food hall level to a whole new kind of plateau where you're creating like one eating area, but you can go out, you can get food from several different restaurants. We know food halls now indoors. Can we take that outdoors where we might have several different restaurants? What are the different ways we can reduce the overhead? I think telework too is, is going to dramatically change. That businesses will start reevaluating how much space that they need and how much they really need to see people every day, which I don't think will promote sprawl. I, I don't at all for a whole host of different reasons, but I do think that that's another change that we're going to see. So this creeping to normal, as I said, I don't think we're ever going to go back to where we are. You know, we always have to move forward. And so we're moving forward, I think, Again, it's not that I would have wished, but in kind of an exciting time for those of us who um, are engaged in building community, building cities, and and desperately engaged in the active public realm. Yeah. So in the spirit of entertainment, you mentioned entertainment, the new realities for entertainment and education. The CNU has uh, recently launched a whole series of different online experiences for both Entertainment and education, mostly education. But uh, you've got some characters on there that are pretty entertaining. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So um, from start to finish, it took us about a week. We launched On the Park Bench, 
which we have a, an online journal called Public Square. So we wanted to, we felt very strongly that we needed to provide a platform for CNU members to engage and connect and to start processing some of the issues. So if we have Public Square as our online journal, well, then let's sit down on the park bench and have a conversation. So that's what the webinar series is called. Um, we're going to continue it after the Congress. It's Tuesdays at noon. So grab your lunch and and uh, sit down. It's meant as an informal conversation around different pressing issues. But we also launched it as practice because we will be hosting the Congress live. We're taking CNU 28, the Twin Cities, into a virtual format. Given various guidelines that have come out recently, it's now impossible for us to host an in-person event, impossible slash illegal. So we are um, we have transitioned almost the entire program um, to an online format. So we'll have about 80 hours of viewing for um, continuing education credits. We're going to have social hours. I was talking to Joe Minicozzi and he's like, we're going to help you with your pub crawl, Lynn. So he's figuring out how to do a virtual pub crawl, which will involve, you know, drinking at different people's houses um, through the through the Zoom connections. We are transitioning a lot of the sessions to touch on the current pandemic and asking accepted sessions to kind of think about what the current conditions mean, but not across the board. You know, when we're talking about new ways of public engagement, yeah, we'll talk about a virtual engagement, but it's also about how can can we engage more of the more of the community? So we've spent so much time and effort in pulling the program together. Um, I was just looking through it, and I'm like, "Damn, this sounds really great! I want to go to this." So we're excited to bring it into a virtual. And like everything else, I think that this is going to accelerate the trend for CNU. I think that for seeing you in 2021, seeing you 29 in Oklahoma City, I think that we'll have a lot more virtual events. And I'm excited about that. We've always had a strong international audience. On the park bench now is is attracting people from regularly from Brazil and Afghanistan, Pakistan, Europe. And so I think the Congress, which has always attracted about three dozen countries, I think we'll see much greater participation internationally. I think a lot more local government officials will, will drop in, people who have been um, seeing you curious. So I think this is, again, making some lemonade. This will be a, an opportunity for us to really introduce the magic of the Congress that, that we all have. I, I should say, people think that I'm talking about the magic of the Congress because I'm the CEO. I, I worked for 14 years with EPA, and I always used my um, training money to go to the Congress. So I had gone to like eight Congresses before I'd become the, the head of it. I just always found it to be the, the best part of my year. So anyway, very excited about the, the virtual launch, a uh, little terrified in that we're pulling together something that we've never done in about eight weeks, but we'll do it. It'll be fun. And uh, yeah, I think a lot of this will continue through, through the summer. The bottom line is new urbanists. Victor Dover said it so well the other day when he was doing a webinar on virtual charrettes. He said, new urbanists have always been the innovators. We've always been the problem solvers and we'll continue to be so. This is our time. There is a crisis that we're facing and we'll rise to the challenge and we'll, we'll move forward. So I, I'm really excited to see the degree of innovation that the members will come up with. 
Fantastic. Yeah. And I will uh, commit that uh, Victor uh, Dover and I, as as well as Mike Leiden and Grayson Johnson, we were going to be leading the uh, fun runs on uh, Thursday and Friday mornings. So we'll have to figure out how to do a virtual fun run. Yes. Well, and and you, Victor, and I should figure out how to do an epic ride. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. What, what Lynn is referring to is uh, we don't do it every every year, but we try to make it happen some way, somehow, some some kind of uh, epic bike ride uh, in the days leading up to the the Congress. And in our last one that we did was uh, when uh, the Congress was in Savannah, Georgia, and we did a two day ride essentially from uh, Charleston, South Carolina, into into Savannah. It was it was great fun. It was great fun. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. made for a long Congress, but it was great fun. <laughs> exactly. Lynn, what haven't we addressed that you'd like everybody, what would like the, the listeners to hear about? The thing I think I'm most excited about with CNU is just not the organization, but the, the membership and people involved in city building are really moving into the realm of equity and inclusion. Like we know how to build a mixed use neighborhood or development. And as Victor will be quick to point out, it's still not easy, but we're more well aware of how to do it. And what increasingly folks are turning their attention to is how do we revitalize a corridor or a neighborhood that has seen decades of disinvestment and do it in a way that minimizes displacement and increase access to opportunity. And that's a little bit what the federal program called the Opportunity Zones is trying to get to, though there's significant problems with that with that program. But, you know, this issue around creating places for everyone, to me, that feels like the challenge, like one of the big challenges of the 21st century. We have figured out the hard work of how to bring back, as you said, the old urbanism. We understand the rules of the active public realm. But what we haven't figured out yet is how to do this in a way that doesn't require considerable subsidies. And I think John Anderson plays, and the work that he's doing with the Incremental Development Alliance, plays a really strong role in that. Instead of thinking about development in a way, it's like we're going to redevelop these 30 acres, 2,000 units, etc. Like, let's just do a Victorian house as a four square. Let's just, you know, do a three flat, do a two flat. I think that there's something really empowering about creating a thousand developers in one town because it's not a thousand developers as a bad word it's a thousand people invested in their own neighborhoods so that's a challenge that i'm so proud and humbled by so many cnu members really want to address and tackle head on so pretty excited about that and i'm also really excited about the work that members are doing in imagining what a 21st century mobility system looks like. So much of the work that we've done in the past is is really taking 20th century approaches. But now as we move into the 21st century, you know, the micro mobility, the on-demand mobility, you know, autonomous vehicles, how does that all transition? And we talk about post-pandemic and what I think What I would like to see happen is that we lose some of the space that we've created for cars and we make, we take that space and give it to other kinds of mobilities, that it's not a bike 
lane that's three feet. It's an entire traffic lane that is dedicated to any sort of vehicle that goes more than eight miles an hour. So sidewalks can go back to being for people. And now we've created this safe place for anything that's moving faster than say, you know, five or six miles an hour, which includes people who are running really fast because they hate running on the sidewalk. So let's start imagining our cities on this on-demand micro mobility, and then think about what that means for first mile, last mile, John, before this pandemic hit, I really felt that we were on the cusp of a new type of of city building, that that it wasn't, we can't quite put our hands around it, but in the next five years, we're going to be there. We're going to move into the 21st century with mobility. So it's those two issues that I'm really excited about, and they all tie into complete neighborhoods, legalizing walkable places, and designing for a changing climate, because those are the areas that are still very much with us. So those are the two issues we didn't touch on. <laughs> yeah. And and it really all comes back to what we talked about earlier, which is designing cities for everyone, for all ages and abilities. And that includes that that has, as you said, that foundation of uh, equity and inclusiveness built in. You know, it literally is, you know, for everyone. And that's that's so incredibly important. Lynn, thank you so very much. This has been an absolute joy. It's John, thank you so much for asking me, and uh, I look forward to seeing your face in person. Absolutely. We can go for a bike ride. Oh, joy, joy. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Lynn Richards, and I hope you'll join me in attending the virtual Congress coming up in June. Head on over to cnu.org for more information and to register. Future episodes for the Active Towns podcast include Holly Bachman-Bennett, Amanda Popkin, Jeff Wood, Alyssa Walker, and a joint episode with Maggie Wattups and Dom Nazi. So please stay tuned. Also, don't hesitate to drop me a line if you have any suggestions on guests or topics in mind. You can reach me at john at activetowns.org. Well, that's all for this episode. So until next time, this is John signing off by wishing you much activity, health, and happiness. Cheers. Cheers.